Welcome to HP Media Minute, a podcast from Haynes and Boone that focuses on legal trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and First Amendment law. Today's topic, what is a standard essential patent and why do I need to know about them? It's a legal framework that is at the root of many popular technologies. We have an excellent guide for today's discussion, Raghav Bajaj, an IP partner in Haynes and Boone's Austin office. Raghav's practice focuses on patent office trials before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, including inter-partist review and covered business method review proceedings, representing both petitioners and patent owners. Raghav has served as counsel in more than 50 patent office trials. Before we get started, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Raghav, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nathan. Let's, let, let's start by talking uh, about standardized technology, which, I, which is a foundational element of standard essential patents or, or SEPs. Can you walk us through the process that results in a new technology becoming an industry standard? Sure. So at a high level, uh, industry participants will get together and over the course of multiple meetings, they'll develop a technical standard that sets out a specification for complying with that standard. Uh, These meetings are sometimes organized by a standards body like the International Telecommunication Union or the International Organization for Standardization, also known as the ISO. One of the goals of the standard setting process is to create some level of uniformity across these industry participants. So, for example, to ensure operability between devices on a certain technological aspect. So, for example, HDMI is a standard that allows the same plug to be used with multiple types of devices. USB is another widely known standard. The the jack that you plug in a telephone, the RJ11 jack, that's a industry standards so that anybody can have the same jack and uh, use a telephone. Is it a pretty long process, uh, review process that that leads up to something becoming an industry standard? It can be because you're dealing with uh, competing interests. You know, companies want to get a product to market fast, but to ensure that everybody's product can work together, uh, there are a lot of technical details that need to be worked out, and these technical standards can be very lengthy. So it's not a short process um, by any means. And it sounds like at the end of that, you, is there you, after you work through all those those details, you and something is deemed an industry standard, is there sort of an official certification that comes out of that process? Right. So there's usually a a document that comes out of it that sets out the the procedures or the technical details for complying with the standard. And many times there are certifications that come out of this. So for example, uh, I mentioned USB and there are certifications that, you know, a product can be deemed certified to comply with the USB standard. Got it. And let's turn now to the concept of, of a standard essential patent. Um, can you please describe what those are? Sure. So I mentioned that one of the goals is to ensure operability between devices. 
And, and one example of that is in the video compression arena and standard essential patents are often talked about in, in this area. Um, and just as a background, video compression techniques are, are developed to compress video that's captured by a camera um, into a smaller size so that it's you know, easier to transport, for example, over the internet. And that's where standards come in. If I want my video to be widely viewed, I want to make sure that as many people as possible can view it. So I want to compress it in a, a standard format so that anybody with a standard compliant device can view it. So my prized television show or movie can be viewed on an iPhone or an Android device or a computer, and uh, they all comply with the standard so they all can view the same content without me doing anything in addition. And as the name suggests, Rob, it's an industry standard for video compression that's universal. I think mean, it applies across the across the world. Is that correct? Right? Yeah. And so, a standard essential patent is is basically a patent that has been identified as essential to practice to comply with the standard. It's, it's really in the name. Um, so, within a given standard, for example, in in video compression, there are hundreds or thousands of technical developments that are contributed by the participants to the standards process. Um, Many of those developments are covered by patents, and those patents are deemed or declared as essential to the standard. And so standard essential patents are those that are required to implement core functionality of the standard. And is is it a court or is it another certifying body that, that, that stamps it standard essential patent, these technologies? So standard essential patents are declared by the owner of the patent itself or the contributor of the technology. Uh, there's no, uh, in, in many of the standards, there's no verification by the standards body that a given mm-hmm. patent is actually essential to the standard. Well, it sound, I would think it would be a good thing uh, to, to have a, uh, to be a patent owner of a standard essential patent. It would be financially valuable. Is, is that correct? Yes. So if you think about it at a, a really basic level, if you have a, a royalty rate for your patent that is a cent, but you have billions of devices that implement this patent, the financial reward for having a, a patent that is declared as essential and that is you know valid and essential to that, uh, that standard can be really quite large. You mentioned video compression. What are some other technologies in which standard essential patents play a prominent role? Sure. So aside from video compression, uh, one of the more uh, commonly known or commonly used areas where standard essential patents play a role is in telecommunications. So there are standard essential patents that play in LTE and 5G, the technologies used by cell phones. Same goes for Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. And, And these are all patents and standards that are designed so that, you know, my Wi-Fi devices, even though they're not all from the same manufacturer, can talk to each other and, and give me Wi-Fi throughout my house. I mean, it, just, it would be, I would think, complete chaos if we, if we didn't have this sort of standardization. Exactly. Um, I want to get into some of the, some of the key legal issues around standard essential patents that, that listeners should know about. I understand there's a concept in which these patents need to be licensed on a fair, reasonable 
non-discriminatory non-discriminatory basis. Can you explain what that means? Right. So fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. It's often referred to by its acronym of FRAND. And so generally speaking, participants in a standard setting process are sometimes obligated to license any patents they declare as essential on these fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. And the definition of, of what is a FRAND rate, it's a topic that could go on and on. And, and there's actually a lot of litigation as to what a proper FRAND rate is. But the principle is that you know, non-discriminatory, you can't charge different licensees different rates just because of you know a discriminatory reason. And then it's got to be reasonable. You can't uh, you can't assign a value to a FRAN patent that is, you know, that could exceed the the value of the underlying technology or the value of the device that is implementing the the patent. Um, one one imagines that you could quickly stifle innovation if a FRAN rate were to uh, were excessive. Exactly, and that is some of the issues around standard essential patents is that um, when patents are declared to a standard, you know, companies that are developing products can find it financially unreasonable to license these patents and still make a profit on those devices. So they may shelve development of that device entirely because uh, they can't sell it without invoking those uh, licensing obligations that, you know, kill any profit that they might have. Are there certain technologies for which the FRAN rates are, are pretty well established? Um, or or is, it, is it one of those things where it's almost always litigated or fought over? It's almost always litigated or fought over. There's no <laughs> you know, database or standard uh, you know, spreadsheet of what I would have to pay to implement a certain standard. That's why... Attorneys like you are so important, I, I would imagine. Um, exactly. <laughs> uh, talk to me about patent pools, which I understand are, are designed to bring a little bit of efficiency to the, to the process. Right. So patent pools are sometimes set up by, by multiple companies who own standard essential patents, like you said, in an attempt to create an efficiency. So in an ideal world, patent pools are set up so that if five companies uh, contribute to a standard, instead of having to negotiate a license with each of those five companies on an individual basis, those five companies can join a patent pool or form a patent pool and you negotiate one license to the patent pool. Um, so it, ideally that creates efficiencies, but when you have that many patents as part of a pool, it can sometimes be difficult to evaluate, you know, for example, whether any individual patent in that pool is truly essential to the standard, whether it's valid, whether you're getting a fair rate. Um, so patent pools, like I said, are are designed for efficiency, but can at the same time create some inefficiencies and imbalances in the negotiations. And, and do patent pools exist for most popular technologies? You, you, you talked about video compression. Would, would there be a patent pool in, in that space? Right. So there are actually many um, that are multiple patent pools in the video compression space. So uh, when we talk about some of the, the latest patent or standard essential patent pools and the, the latest video compression standards, for example, uh, HEVC is one of the, the 
latest ones that many devices implement, there are maybe four or five patent pools uh, dedicated to licensing patents declared essential to HEVC. And there are also companies that don't participate in the patent pools. So um, there's a, if you want to fully license uh, and, and feel completely safe, it, it can be an arduous process. Let me ask you about over-declaration, which I understand is another issue that, that lawyers like you often wrestle with uh, in, in regards to standard essential patents. Can you talk, talk to us about that? Sure. So I mentioned that in a patent pool, you can have you know patents contributed by multiple different companies. And sometimes uh, companies over-declare patents as essential to the standard. Uh, and when you're licensing a group of standard essential patents, there's sometimes a perception of strength in numbers or quantity over quality. If you have more patents declared as essential, you can sometimes negotiate a higher licensing rate. But uh, on an individual basis, if you unpack it, some of those patents may not actually be valid. They may not actually be essential, but because the the contributor has declared them to be, um, unless you unwind or, or unpack the entire pool, which can be a very time-consuming and expensive process, uh, you might be locked into just uh, licensing everything that they're offering. I mean, how do parties resolve these disputes if it's about fran rates or over-declaration issues? Do they typically have to head to court to do this? Is it usually resolved just through an exchange of letters? Um, just kind of curious how, how parties sort of work through their differences. So it's usually a, a business negotiation. Um, it's, it is rare that this goes to litigation because litigation is obviously costly. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, it, it would be extremely difficult to litigate a, an entire patent pool, which has sometimes tens of thousands of patents. So typically it's companies or patent pool negotiating with a technology implementer um, on a, a one-to-one basis um, to, to figure out a, a rate that you know, both parties can agree to. Now that itself creates some inefficiencies. For example, if if there's you know, ten companies that want to implement a standard, once company one negotiates a license, uh, when companies two through ten have to to do the same thing, they don't necessarily know, or they they usually don't know what the first company paid. So they may be paying more, they may be paying less if they can negotiate a better deal, um, and so the the process has to repeat over and over again. So. Uh, that's typically how these get negotiated, um, but litigation is uh, maybe increasing because it, it's hard for these companies to come to an agreement. And once, once they have reached an agreement, do the licenses last typically for a certain period of time or it's, are they in perpetuity? They, they typically last for a certain period of time, um, whether it's you know five years or, or something like that. Um, it's, it's rare that they're in perpetuity. Uh, because you know, given patents being you know expired after 20 years from filing and things like that, um, mm-hmm. there's it, it wouldn't be financially beneficial for at least the the licensing companies 
to to negotiate a rate that uh, lasts for a lot longer than than might be warranted. So here's a uh, a very uh, I guess general question, but on balance, do you think most practitioners think the SCP process works well? At, you know, does it does it sort of meet its objectives? I think there, I'd have to give the answer that the the typical lawyer answer that it depends. <laughs> yeah, uh, it depends on who you're asking. Um, you know, for example, a given patent owner might think that the process works very well for them because they're they're getting a return on their investment, but you know, I mentioned the the example of a company that decided to to stop development on a project because they couldn't afford a a license to a patent pool. That company doesn't think that it worked out very well. So uh, it it really depends on the perspective that you're looking at. What, what's surprising to me as someone who's not not versed in this is that there's not a standard negotiation to standard patents. It seems like it's very much a kind of case by case negotiation. Exactly. That, that is one of the difficulties that if there was a little bit more transparency, um, some of the is- these issues might not exist. Raghav, do you think there are any efforts to by regulators or others to require transparency? There are definitely efforts to increase the amount of transparency and industry participants and, and regulators have, have tried different strategies. And overall, I think that they are making progress. Um, I don't know that it is happening as fast as the industry would like it to be, but I think that industry-led efforts are going to be more successful than than government-imposed uh, transparency efforts. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, any other points or issues you would like to bring up before we sign off? No, nothing. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you about these issues. Great. Well, Raghav, thank you so much for, for joining. I'd like to remind everyone that you can find this podcast and other interesting content from our IP and media and entertainment litigation practice groups at HanesBoon.com. You can also find this and other Haynes and Boone podcasts on most popular podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for our next episode of HB Media Minute.